Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Section 8 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 8. Wesley Harris, Elias Robert Jackson, and the Matterson Brothers. Footnote. Wesley Harris was shot by slave hunters. End footnote. In setting out for freedom, Wesley was the leader of this party. After two nights of fatiguing travel, at a distance of about sixty miles from home, the young aspirants for liberty were betrayed, and in an attempt made to capture them, a most bloody conflict ensued. Both fugitives and pursuers were the recipients of severe wounds from gunshots and other weapons used in the contest. Wesley bravely used his firearms until almost fatally wounded by one of the pursuers, who, with a heavily loaded gun, discharged the contents with deadly aim in his left arm, which raked the flesh from the bone for a space of about six inches in length. One of Wesley's companions also fought heroically and only yielded when badly wounded and quite overpowered. The two younger, brothers of C. Matterson, it seemed, made no resistance. In order to recall the adventures of this struggle and the success of Wesley Harris, it is only necessary to copy the report as then penned from the lips of this young hero while on the Underground Railroad, even then in a very critical state. Most fearful indeed was his condition when he was brought to the Vigilance Committee in this city. Underground Railroad Record November 2, 1853 Arrived Robert Jackson, short man Elias Wesley Harris Age, 22 years, dark color, medium height, and of slender stature. Robert was born in Martinsburg, Virginia, and was owned by Philip Pendleton. From a boy, he had always been hired out. At the first of this year, he commenced services with Mrs. Carroll, proprietress of the United States Hotel at Harper's Ferry. Of Mrs. Carroll, he speaks in very grateful terms saying that she was kind to him and all the servants, and promised them their freedom at her death. She excused herself for not giving them their freedom on the ground that her husband died insolvent, leaving her the responsibility of settling his debts. But while Mrs. Carroll was very kind to her servants, her manager was equally as cruel. About a month before Wesley left, the overseer, for some trifling cause, attempted to flog him, but was resisted, and himself flogged. This resistance of the slave was regarded by the overseer as an unpardonable offense. Consequently, he communicated the intelligence to his owner, which had the desired effect on his mind as appeared from his answer to the overseer, which was nothing less than instructions that if he should again attempt to correct Wesley and he should repel the wholesome treatment, the overseer was to put him in prison and sell him. Whether he offended again or not, 
the following Christmas, as he was to be sold without fail. Wesley's mistress was kind enough to apprise him of the intention of his owner and the overseer, and told him that if he could help himself, he had better do so. So from that time Wesley began to contemplate how he should escape the doom which had been planned for him. A friend, says he, by the name of C. Matterson, told me that he was going off. Then I told him of my master writing to Mrs. Carroll concerning selling, etc., and that I was going off too. We then concluded to go together. There were two others, brothers of Matterson, who were told of our plan to escape, and readily joined with us in the undertaking. So one Saturday night, at twelve o'clock, we set out for the north. After traveling upwards of two days and over sixty miles, we found ourselves unexpectedly in Terrytown, Maryland. There we were informed by a friendly colored man of the danger we were in, and of the bad character of the place towards colored people, especially those who were escaping to freedom, and he advised us to hide as quickly as we could. We at once went to the woods and hid. Soon after we had secreted ourselves, a man came nearby and commenced splitting wood or rails, which alarmed us. We then moved to another hiding place in a thicket near a farmer's barn, where we were soon startled again by a dog approaching and barking at us. The attention of the owner of the dog was drawn to his barking and to where we were. The owner of the dog was a farmer. He asked us where we were going. We replied, Gettysburg, to visit some relatives, etc. He told us that we were running off. He then offered friendly advice, talked like a Quaker, and urged us to go with him to his barn for protection. After much persuasion, we consented to go with him. Soon after putting us in his barn, himself and daughter prepared us a nice breakfast, which cheered our spirits as we were hungry. For this kindness we paid him one dollar. He next told us to hide on the mow till evening, when he would safely direct us on our road to Gettysburg. All, very much fatigued from traveling, fell asleep, excepting myself. I could not sleep. I felt as if all was not right. About noon, men were heard talking around the barn. I woke my companions up and told them that the man had betrayed us. At first they did not believe me, and a moment afterwards the barn door was opened, and in came the men, eight in number. One of the men asked the owner of the barn if he had any long straw. Yes, was the answer. So up on the mow came three of the men, when, to their great surprise, as they pretended, we were discovered. The question was then asked by the owner of the barn, by one of the men, if he harbored runaway negroes in his barn. He answered, no, and pretended to be entirely ignorant of their being in his barn. One of the men replied that four negroes were on the mow, and he knew of it. The men then asked us where we were going. We told them to Gettysburg, that we had aunts and a mother living there. Also we spoke of a Mr. Huffman, a gentleman we happened to have some knowledge of, having seen him in Virginia. We were asked for our passes. We told them that we hadn't any, that we had not been required to carry them from where we came from. They then said that we would have to go before a magistrate, and if he allowed us to go on, well and good. The men, all being armed and furnished with ropes, we were ordered to be tied. I told them if they took me, they would have to take me dead or crippled. At the same instant, one of my friends cried out, Where is the man that betrayed us? Spying him at the same moment, he shot him, badly wounding him. Then the conflict fairly began. The constable seized me by the collar, or rather behind the shoulder. I at once shot him with my pistol, but in consequence of his throwing up his arm, which hit mine as I fired, the effects of the load of my pistol was much turned aside. His face, however, was badly burned, besides his shoulder being wounded. I again fired on the pursuers, 
but do not know whether I hit anybody or not. I then drew a sword I had brought with me, and was about cutting my way to the door when I was shot by one of the men, receiving the entire contents of one load of a double-barreled gun in my left arm. That being the arm with which I was defending myself, the load brought me to the ground, and I was unable to make further struggle for myself. I was then badly beaten with guns, etc. In the meantime, my friend, Craven, who was defending himself, was shot badly in the face, and most violently beaten until he was conquered and tied. The two young brothers of Craven stood still, without making the least resistance. After we were fairly captured, we were taken to Terrytown, which was in sight of where we were betrayed. By this time I had lost so much blood from my wounds that they concluded my situation was too dangerous to admit of being taken further. So I was made a prisoner at a tavern kept by a man named Fisher. There my wounds were dressed, and thirty-two shot were taken from my arm. For three days I was crazy, and they thought I would die. During the first two weeks, while I was a prisoner at the tavern, I raised a great deal of blood and was considered in a very dangerous condition, so much so that persons desiring to see me were not permitted. Afterwards I began to get better, and was then kept privately, was strictly watched day and night. Occasionally, however, the cook, a colored woman, Mrs. Smith, would manage to get to see me. Also, James Matthews succeeded in getting to see me. Consequently, as my wounds healed and my senses came to me, I began to plan how to make another effort to escape. I asked one of the friends, alluded to above, to get me a rope. He got it. I kept it about me four days in my pocket. In the meantime, I procured three nails. On Friday night, October 14th, I fastened my nails in under the window sill, tied my rope to the nails, threw my shoes out the window, put the rope in my mouth, and took hold of it with my well hand, clambered into the window, very weak, but I managed to let myself down to the ground. I was so weak that I could scarcely walk, but I managed to hobble off to a place three-quarters of a mile from the tavern, where a friend had fixed upon me to go. I succeeded in making my escape. There I was found by my friend, who had kept me secure till Saturday eve, when a swift horse was furnished by James Rogers, and a colored man found to conduct me to Gettysburg. Instead of going directly to Gettysburg, we took a different road in order to shun our pursuers, as the news of my escape had created general excitement. My three other companions, who were captured, were sent to Westminster Jail, where they were kept three weeks, and afterwards sent to Baltimore, and sold for $1,200 apiece. I was informed while at the tavern in Terrytown. The Vigilance Committee procured good medical attention and afforded the fugitive time for recuperation, furnished him with clothing and a free ticket, and set him on his way greatly improved in health, and strong in the faith that he who would be free himself must strike the blow. His safe arrival in Canada, with his thanks, were duly announced. And some time after becoming naturalized, in one of his letters, he wrote that he was a brakesman on the Great Western Railroad, in Canada, promoted from the UGRR, the result of being under the protection of the British Lion. End of section 8. Section 10 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 10. James Mercer, William H. Gilliam, and John Clayton stowed away in a hot berth. 
This arrival came by steamer, but they neither came in stateroom nor as cabin, steerage, or deck passengers. A certain space, not far from the boiler, where the heat and coal dust were almost intolerable, the coloured steward on the boat, in answer to an appeal from these unhappy bondmen, could point to no other place for concealment but this. Nor was he at all certain that they could endure the intense heat of that place. It admitted of no other posture than lying flat down, wholly shut out from the light, and nearly in the same predicament in regard to the air. Here, however, was a chance of throwing off the yoke, even if it cost them their lives. They considered and resolved to try it at all hazards. Henry Box Brown's sufferings were nothing compared to what these men submitted to during the entire journey. They reached the house of one of the committee about three o'clock a.m. All the way from the wharf, the cold rain poured down in torrents, and they got completely drenched, but their hearts were swelling with joy and gladness unutterable. From the thick coating of coal dust and the effect of the rain added thereto, all traces of natural appearance were entirely obliterated, and they looked frightful in the extreme, but they had placed their lives in mortal peril for freedom. Every step of their critical journey was reviewed and commented on with matchless natural eloquence. How, when almost on the eve of suffocating in their warm berths, in order to catch a breath of air, they were compelled to crawl one at a time to a small aperture. But scarcely would one poor fellow pass three minutes being thus refreshed, ere the others would insist that he should go back to his hole. Air was precious, but for the time being they valued their liberty at still greater price. After they had talked to their heart's content, and after they had been thoroughly cleansed and changed in apparel, their physical appearance could be easily discerned, which made it less a wonder whence such outbursts of eloquence had emanated. They bore every mark of determined manhood. The date of this arrival was February 26, 1854, and the following description was then recorded. Arrived by steamer Pennsylvania, James Mercer, William H. Gilliam, and John Clayton from Richmond. James was owned by the widow, Mrs. T. E. White. He is 32 years of age, of dark complexion, well-made, good-looking, reads and writes, is very fluent in speech and remarkably intelligent. From a boy he had been hired out. The last place he had the honour to fill before escaping was with Messrs. Williams and brother, wholesale commission merchants. For his services in this store, the widow had been drawing $125 per annum, clear of all expenses. He did not complain of bad treatment from his mistress. Indeed, he spoke rather favorably of her. But he could not close his eyes to the fact that at one time Mrs. White had been in possession of 30 head of slaves, although at the time he was counting the cost of escaping. Two only remained, himself and William, save a little boy, and on himself a mortgage for $750 was then resting. He could therefore, with his remarkably quick intellect, calculate about how long it would be before he reached the auction block. He had a wife but no child. She was owned by Mr. Henry W. Qualls, so out of that Sodom he felt he would have to escape even at the cost of leaving his wife behind. Of course he felt hopeful that the way would open by which she could escape at a future time. And so it did, as will appear by and by. His aged mother he had to leave also. William Henry Gilliam likewise belonged to the widow White. He had been hired to Mrs. White and brother, 
to drive their bread wagon. William was a baker by trade. For his service, his mistress had received $135 per year. He thought his mistress quite as good, if not a little better than most slaveholders, but he had never felt persuaded to believe that she was good enough for him to remain a slave for her support. Indeed, he had made several unsuccessful attempts before this time to escape from slavery and its horrors. He was fully posted from A to Z, but in his own person he had been smart enough to escape most of the more brutal outrages. He knew how to read and write, and in readiness of speech and general natural ability was far above the average of slaves. He was twenty-five years of age, well made, of light complexion, and might be put down as a valuable piece of property. This loss fell with crushing weight upon the kind-hearted mistress, as will be seen in a letter subjoined which she wrote to the unfaithful William some time after he had fled. Letter from Mrs. L. E. White, Richmond, 16, 1854 Dear Henry, your mother and myself received your letter. She is much distressed at your conduct. She is remaining just as you left her, she says, and she will never be reconciled to your conduct. I think, Henry, you have acted most dishonorably. Had you have made a confidant of me, I would have been better off, and you as you are. I am badly situated, living with Mrs. Palmer, and having to put up with everything. Your mother is also dissatisfied. I am miserably poor. Do not get a cent of your hire or James's beside losing you both, but if you can reconcile, so do. By renting a cheap house, I might have lived. Now it seems salvation is before me. Martha and the doctor are living in Portsmouth. It is not in her power to do much for me. I know you will repent it. I heard six weeks before you went that you were trying to persuade him off, but we all liked you, and I was unwilling to believe it. However, I leave it in God's hands. He will know what to do. Your mother says that I must tell you Servant Jones is dead, and old Mrs. Galt. Kit is well, but we are very uneasy, losing your and James's hire. I fear, poor little fellow, that he will be obliged to go, as I am compelled to live and it will be your fault. I am quite unwell, but of course you don't care. Yours, L. E. White. If you choose to come back and could, I would do a very good part by you. Tola and Cook has none. This touching epistle was given by the disobedient William to a member of the Vigilant Committee, when on a visit to Canada in 1855, and it was thought to be of too much value to be lost. It was put away with other valuable UGRR documents for future reference touching the rascality of William and James and the unfortunate predicament in which it placed the kind-hearted widow, Mrs. Louisa White, the following editorial clipped from the wide-awake Richmond Dispatch was also highly appreciated and preserved as conclusive testimony to the successful working of the UGRR in the Old Dominion. It reads thus, Rascality Somewhere we called attention yesterday to the advertisement of two Negroes belonging to Mrs. Louisa White by Tola and Cook, and in the call we expressed the opinion that they were still lurking about the city, preparatory to going off. Mr. Tola, we find, is of a different opinion. He believes that they have already cleared themselves, have escaped to a free state, and we think it extremely probable that he is in the right. They were both of them uncommonly intelligent Negroes. One of them, the one hired to Mr. White, was a tip-top baker. He had been all about the country, and had been in the habit of supplying the U.S. Pennsylvania with bread, Mr. W. having the contract. 
In his visits, for this purpose, of course, he formed acquaintances with all sorts of seafaring characters, and there is every reason to believe that he has been assisted to get off in that way, along with the other boy hired by the Messrs. Williams. That the two acted in concert can admit of no doubt. The question is now to find out how they got off. They must undoubtedly have had white men in the secret. Have we then a nest of abolition scoundrels among us? There ought to be a law to put a police officer on board every vessel as soon as she lands at the wharf. There is one, we believe, for inspecting vessels before they leave. If there is not, there ought to be one. These Negroes belong to a widow lady and constitute all the property she has on earth. They have both been raised with the greatest indulgence. Had it been otherwise, they would never have had the opportunity to escape as they have done. Their flight has left her penniless. Either of them would readily have sold for $1,200. And Mr. Toller advised their owner to sell them at the commencement of the year, probably anticipating the very thing that has happened. She refused to do so because she felt too much attachment to them. They have made a fine return, truly. No comment is necessary on the above editorial except simply to express the hope that the editor and his friends, who seem to be utterly befogged, as to how these uncommonly intelligent Negroes made their escape, will find the problem satisfactorily solved in this book. However, in order to do even-handed justice to all concerned, it seems but proper that Williams and James should be heard from, and hence a letter from each is here appended for what they are worth. True, they were intended only for private use, but since the true light, freedom, has come, all things may be made manifest. Letter from William Henry Gilliam St. Catherine's, C.W., May 15, 1854 My dear friend, I received yours, dated the 10th, and the papers on the 13th. I also saw the piece that was in Miss Shad's paper about me. I think Tola is right about my being in a free state. I am and think a great deal of it. Also, I have no compassion on the penniless widow lady, I have served her twenty-five years two months. I think that is long enough for me to live a slave. Dear sir, I am very sorry to hear of the accident that happened to our friend Mr. Meekins. I have read the letter to all that lives in St. Catharines that came from Old Virginia, and then I sent it to Toronto, to Mercer and Clayton to see, and to Farman to read to themselves. Sir, you must write to me soon and let me know how Meekins gets on with his trial, and you must pray for him. I have told all here to do the same for him. May God bless and protect him from prison. I have heard a great deal of old Richmond and Norfolk. Dear sir, if you see Mr. or Mrs. Gilbert, give my love to them and tell them to write to me. Also give my respect to your family and apart for yourself. Love from the friends to you, Solomon Brown, H. Atkins. West Johnson, Mrs. Brooks, Mr. Dykes, Mr. Smith is better at present. And do not forget to write the news of Meekin's trial. I cannot say any more at this time, but remain yours and a true friend until death. W. H. Gilliam, The Widow's Might Our friend Minkins, in whose behalf William asked the united prayers of his friends, was one of the scoundrels who assisted him and his two companions to escape on the steamer. Being suspected of rascality in this direction, he was arrested and put in jail, but as no evidence could be found against him, he was soon released. James Mercer's Letter Toronto, March 17, 1854 
My dear friend Still, I take this method of informing you that I am well, and when this comes to hand it may find you and your family enjoying good health. Sir, my particular for writing is that I wish to hear from you, and to hear all the news from down south. I wish to know if all things are working right for the rest of my brethren, whom in bondage. I will also say that I am very much pleased with Toronto, so also the friends that came over with me. It is true that we have not been employed as yet, but we are in hopes of being so in a few days. We happen here in good time just about the time people in this country are going to work. I am in good health and good spirits, and feels rejoiced in the Lord for my liberty. I received a couple of paper from you today. I wish you see James Morris who or Abram George the first and second on the ship Pennsylvania. Give my respects to them, and ask James if he will call at Henry W. Qualls on May Street, opposite the Jews' synagogue, and call for Marina Mercer. Give my love to her, and ask of her all the times about Richmond. Tell her to send me all the news. Tell Mr. Morris that there will be no danger in going to that place. You will also tell M. to make himself known to her, as she may know who sent him. And I wish to get a letter from you. James M. Mercer John H. Hill's letter My friend, I would like to hear from you. I have been looking for a letter from you for several days, and the last was very distressing to me. Please to write right away. Yours most respectfully, John H. Hill Instead of weeping over the sad situation of his penniless mistress and showing any signs of contrition for having wronged the man who held the mortgage of $750 on him, James actually feels rejoiced in the Lord for his liberty, and is very much pleased with Toronto. But is not satisfied yet. He is ever concocting a plan by which his wife might be run off from Richmond, which would be the cause of her owner, Henry W. Qualls, Esquire, losing at least $1,000. St. Catherine, Canada, June 8, 1854. Mr. Still, dear friend, I received a letter from the poor old widow, Mrs. L. E. White, and she says I may come back if I choose, and she will do a good part by me. Yes, yes, I am choosing the western side of the south for my home. She is smart, but cannot bung my eye, so she shall have to die in the poorhouse at last, so she says, and Mercer and myself will be the cause of it. That is all right, I am getting even with her now, for I was in the poorhouse for twenty-five years and have just got out. And she said she knew I was coming away six weeks before I started, so you may know my chance was slim. But Mr. John Wright said I came off like a gentleman, and he did not blame me for coming, for I was a great boy. Yes, I hear him enough, he is all gas. I am in Canada, and they cannot help themselves. About that subject, I will not say anything more. You must write to me as soon as you can, and let me hear the news and how the family is and yourself. Let me know how the Times is with the UGRR company. Is it doing good business? Mr. Dyke sends his respects to you. Give mine to your family. Your true friend, W.H. Gilliam. John Clayton, the companion in tribulation of William and James, must not be lost sight of any longer. He was owned by the widow Clayton, and was white enough to have been nearly related to her, being a mulatto. He was about thirty-five years of age, a man of fine appearance and quite intelligent. Several years previous he had made an attempt to escape, but failed. Prior to escaping in this instance, he had been laboring in a tobacco factory at $150 a year. It is needless to say that he did not approve of the peculiar institution. 
He left a wife and one child behind to mourn after him. Of his views of Canada and freedom, the following frank and sensible letter, penned shortly after his arrival, speaks for itself. Toronto, March 6, 1854 Dear Mr. Still, I take this method of informing you that I am well both in health and mind. You may rest assured that I felt myself a free man, and do not fell as I did when I was in Virginia. Thanks be to God, I have no master into Canada, but I am my own man. I arrived safe into Canada on Friday last. I must request of you to write a few lines to my wife, and just state to her that her friend arrived safe into this glorious land of liberty, and I am well, and she will make very short her time in Virginia. Tell her that I liked here very well, and hopes to like it better when I gets to work. I don't mean for you to write the same words that are written above, but I wish you to give her a clear understanding where I am, and shall remain here until she comes or I hears from her. Nothing more at present but remain yours most respectfully, John Clayton. You will please to direct this to Petersburg Luena Johns, or Clayton John is best. End of section 10